0: Hey, people, welcome once again to Steve-O's Music News. Uh, this would be episode 31 on June 27th, and I, I guess you could say that I've, I kind of took a uh, a little three-week, uh, not quite summer sabbatical, but um, we're getting busy and, and things are happening, but um, we're back at it again here. Thanks uh, for tuning in and uh, giving it a listen. Again, uh, June 27th is when this show is uh, being recorded, and this would be my 31st episode, still trying to get it back to that uh, once a week. But you know what? When we get it out, we get it out. And we'll always have a, uh, a healthy dose of music news for you, which I, I think we've got a good one today. want to bring in uh, my longtime friend and uh, noted musical uh, guru, I guess. He always has his uh, finger on the pulse of the reissue world and the rock world, Iron Mountain's Jerry Ham, Jerry, nice to have you here again.
1: Oh, thanks, steve Always nice to be here. Long-time listener, so it's uh, always a pleasure for me to join in from time to time and give you some rock news.
0: Well, if there's anybody that's got really an an idea about what's going on with reissues, it would be you. Uh, you and I go back to the uh, the old famous days of Ice Magazine and Goldmine Magazine, which I, I know uh, Ice disbanded years ago. I mean, if we wanted to get reissue news and upcoming release news really more i think uh i think we were big on the reissue news and you just don't get that anymore so i think we do a little bit of the same thing we, we kind of dig around on the internet and try and and find out you probably have a few better sources than i do so uh but you do remember those days of ice magazine right
1: oh for sure yeah i remember checking that out especially you know in the first it's like the dawn of the cd when it came so everything was reissued for the first time on cd but as we know a lot of those initial pressings on cd weren't done to the best quality so then we hit the world of remasters where things are coming out remastered with bonus tracks and whatnot and and that actually is still continuing to this very day you know you've got bands that are digging stuff out of the vaults sometimes 30 40 50
0: years later well that's why we have you on here and i think this is our third go around here since we've been doing this so let me lead him right away you're a big metallica fan Uh, They've got this Black Album anniversary set coming out. What can you tell us about it?
1: Yeah, this was just announced earlier this week. Excuse me. Not a big surprise because there has been box set reissues of the previous Metallica albums. But as you said, this coming fall here is the 30th anniversary of the self-titled Metallica album. But literally weeks after it came out, if not days, it was referred to as the Black Album. And it's kind of maintained that name people only have one metallic album they have that one yes everyone that's the one with enter sandman on there with the black cover looks kind of like back in black but this is a different black album anyway this one's coming out as i said the 30th anniversary edition And you're going to get the single disc, which is just remastered. It also got a double disc collection with some extras, but with the diehard fans and really many of the fans are going to want, because you're talking about an album that's one of the biggest selling rock albums of all time. They have this huge box set that comes with six vinyl pieces, 14 cds and six dvds as well as a hardcover book some memorabilia all the odds and ends any metallica fan could want you're going to get live stuff on here demos work in progress versions once again everything you could think of the b-sides that were out at the time edited versions interviews so there's really a lot to cover that the tour for the black album went from like 1991 to 93. So it was a long run for the band to date. It sold about 35 million copies worldwide. So certainly that's going to be a big seller come this fall. It comes out September 10th. And also to piggyback to that Metallica is putting out a two disc set. It, what it is, it's a tribute, official tribute album to the black album, the track by mally cyrus is currently out right now and if there's actually 53 tracks on this what's nice about this it's called blacklist it's a four cd set but it, all the proceeds for this go to charity so even though you know people might think oh metallica's putting something out a tribute to themselves so to speak everyone actually got together and do this and this is all going to charity and finally, in October, there's also a, a Black Album book coming out, a photo book authorized by the band. So over the course of September, October, Metallica fans are going to love
0: it. Yeah, I was going to say, regarding the numbers there, you kind of covered some of it. I didn't realize uh, it had sold $35 million worldwide. I don't have the data right in front of me. I, I could dig it up, but uh, offhand, domestically, do you remember what that what the numbers are for that one?
1: I think uh, by last tally, it's at least 16 million copies. You know how sometimes it goes that it it takes a while for things to get recertified. But it's something that literally sells anything from 800,000 to a million copies a year to this day going on 30 years later. So there's there's big albums, and then there's the monsters, the handful that really just exceed. You know, it's it's up there like the first Boston album, you know, Michael Jackson thriller, Appetite for Destruction, albums like that that are truly, you know few and far between in terms of their success and
0: you got to wonder how often uh, and how many more copies physical cd copies some of these are going to sell in the uh, streaming era that we're in now but uh, if they're if they're doing it the way they've been figuring the uh the current billboard album chart totals there there's going to be a way that they're going to add those streaming numbers in there well again all that stuff on metallica is good and uh, we'll look for that Uh, additional info uh, and those releases coming out in September. Okay, so uh, some of these bands here, of course, are close to your heart. The Rolling Stones are one of them. And they have this uh, live 2006 set coming out. uh, And I don't think it's out yet, but uh, what can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, that's coming out soon. July 9th is the release date. And what it is, is they did a um, they did a free show in 2006 on their Bigger Bang tour, which uh, Bigger Bang is currently their most recent studio album of new material. They've put out as lots of reissues. They put out a blues album, and they put out some isolated new songs or compilations. But actually, their last studio album came out in 2005. So this was in 2006 in support of it. In Rio de Janeiro at Copacabana, it was a free show. Obviously, they can't know exactly, but estimates of 1.6 million people attended this show. And this is going to be the whole show beginning to end on DVD or Blu-ray, whichever you prefer. Double CD set, you also can get it on vinyl. It's called The Biggest Bang, live in Copacabana, that comes out July 9th. And the Stones have been great in recent years, just a steady stream of reissues coming out. And uh, actually 2022, believe it or not, will be the Stone's 60th anniversary. And they're not, um, they're not they don't really mix that really into a whole lot of nostalgia, but for the 50th anniversary, we got a lot of things. And although nothing's officially been announced, I would assume that next year there's going to be even more from the reissue and vault era for uh, the Rolling Stones.
0: Iron Mountain's Jerry Hamm is with me right now, uh, specializing in rock music, rock reissues, and things like that. And, Jer, I talked recently, I think it might have been on the last podcast that I did, uh, more acrimony in the Pink Floyd camp between Roger Waters and David Gilmour. And you can clarify this again. I know they've been talking about putting the uh, Animal's box set out, but there was, uh, there was some arguing going on with... Of all things, regards to the liner notes, uh, what do we need to know about this?
1: Yeah, you—you you pretty much, uh, you, like you said, you touched on it. And uh, you know, David Gilmore and Roger Waters—they've—it seemed like they kind of came to a truce. You know, they did actually have the one reunion performance at Live 8, but that was already in two thousand five. You know, so we're getting fifteen, sixteen years later, and you know, it seems like every time there's a Pink Floyd situation that involves you know the three remaining members, which of course is those two, and Nick Mason. There's a lot of red tape to get it out. And Animals, according to Roger Waters, which is one of the last classic albums that haven't got this big box set treatment yet, there's been a new mix that's complete, and this box set is ready to be pressed and put out. But according to him, one of the big snags is the liner notes that David Gilmour won't approve. And Roger Waters actually posted on his website what these liner notes would be. And nothing that's too inflammatory in there. So as they always say, there's three sides to every story. But that's the hang-up there. So hopefully they can get this ironed out and this can come out. But it seems like the acrimony in the Pink Floyd camp, after calming down for a few years, it seemed to get kind of ugly again. So which is, uh, you know, unfortunate for the fans because I think a reunion tour or anything is pretty much out of the question for the fact that they can't even come to an agreement to put out a reissue. But fingers crossed, it is done and ready to go, so I would hope that at some point they can come to an agreement and we can see that.
0: Well, it would be good for the holidays, if nothing else, and it wouldn't surprise me if it took that long. We're talking, what, another five months at least to get it down there, so... Uh, Who would think that uh, liner notes are going to hold it up? But again, these guys have been kind of sniping back and forth at each other. You know, Nick Mason, he'd have been happy to get back together with the band just to do some concerts. But you're just you're just not going to see it happen again
1: no i i wouldn't think so i mean roger waters is even the one who said he'd be open to it for another you know sort of charity type event or something and you know david gilmore seems to have washed his hands of all things pink floyd at least in terms of doing anything new i mean he's done things on the reissue end but when they broke up and roger left the band in 1985 and as we all know it got the, the breakup was quite ugly and a lot of legal stuff is going on to this very day but again, hopefully cooler heads can prevail because ultimately if you have something that's ready to come out, let's get it out and do what's right for the fans.
0: Okay, great. So we'll uh, we'll stay in tune with you on that too. And one other segment here we want to talk about, you're probably one of the biggest KISS fans that I know. And something that's actually, as we record this on a Sunday, this uh, uh, KISS story part two is, I think, premiering tonight? What uh, What do we need to know about that?
1: Yeah, actually, on the E and e Network premiering tonight, it's a a new biography on KISS. It's actually a two-parter, two hours tonight, two hours tomorrow night, 8 o'clock Central Time, both nights. It's called kiss and it's an official biography, a documentary, if you will, because it has the band's involvement. You know, it's all their people are involved. It's not like it's something unauthorized that they... They contributed to they're actually, you know, are all part of putting it out. But when I say the band is involved, in it, it's actually Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, the remaining two original members. Word has it that Peter Chris and Ace Fraley were invited to be a part of it, but once again, as we just spoke about acrimony in bands, they couldn't come to an agreement. Peter and Ace wanted some sort of say so in the final cut of it. Apparently, the offer was you can participate, but you're not involved in what actually comes out. And so once again, you know what, uh, Peter and Ace will be in this, you know, from archive interviews and whatnot. They won't be, there just won't be any new interviews, but there will be with Paul, with Gene, with current members, Tommy Thayer and Eric Singer, and some other fans of the band and people who have been around the band. So it looks real good. Shame that the original band couldn't been in, involved, but it's going to cover their whole history, which is... Coming up on 50 years, you know, the band started in late 72, early 73. So should be interesting in four hours. So Kiss fans and really all music fans, check it out.
0: So as a Kiss fan, uh, how did you feel about Paul Stanley's recent solo album? I know you like a lot of rock music, but are you the one of those kind of guys that, you know, I'm even even when Led Zeppelin, uh, or rather, uh, not Led Zeppelin, but when Robert Plant did like the, uh, the Honey Drippers projects and things like that, are you kind of on board with some of that stuff?
1: Well, I think, you know, especially any artist has been around as long as some of these people have. They've more than earned the right to try something new and do what they want. And, you know, Paul Stanley said one thing about a Soul Station project is that it wasn't any sort of half-hearted thing. He didn't just go in the studio one day and sing some soul songs. I mean, he put a top-notch band together. He worked on this for a long time. And it's really, it's a quality piece of work. As you know it, that might not necessarily be something that's in my everyday listening you know playlist but i i did enjoy the album and I, i'm not sure if it's something paul's going to continue in but like i said i w- i think i appreciate about it and i think fans of that style of music which we all are i mean that's classic music even if it's not on your everyday playlist. I mean, those soul classics, are music was built on that. And I think Paul really did it justice in terms of he gave it the respect it deserved, and he really worked hard on the project, and the band is top-notch. And something a little, even if you're not a, a that style of music, I, you know, check it out.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, I purchased uh, a CD copy of it and had some downloads, and I thoroughly enjoyed the project. Some of the songs that he put on there were were all-time favorites of mine. Uh, could it be I'm falling in love, which was an, an old Spinners classic. Uh, the Five Stair Steps in their version of Ooh Child. Lala means I love you. Uh, an, an old uh, casino. Uh, when I'm drawing a blank now, I want to say casinos, but I could be wrong on that one too. But uh, the Delphonics—that's what I'm talking about. But anyways, yep. it was great. To, it was great to have that, and uh, it, it's uh, residing in my car right now as we speak. All right, Jerry. Yeah, and I
1: think as you know about that one, Steve-O, is is that we said is that it's, you know, for people who are wondering, it's not some sort of rock and roll Paul Stanley kiss twist on the Soul Classic. He does them as they were originally done, obviously with his own twist, but it's it's not any sort of rock and roll heavy update on the songs. It's as you remember them, and I think fans of those songs in that time will definitely enjoy it.
0: Yeah, I thought the musicianship was extremely faithful to the original versions and the fact that he has like about 10 or 11 people in the band uh just just really stood out to me and again it wasn't a half-hearted effort he went into it not just uh little acoustic tunes here and there no he uh he he took uh his time on it and they uh they came up with quite the effort i think it made what the debut in the top 10 on billboard for whatever that means anymore right
1: (laughs) yeah it's it's definitely you know i think even paul knew that the days of something like that being multi-platinum are probably going to be over but you know i think the kiss fans checked it out i think the soul fans checked it out and um you know, as we keep saying, props to Paul for taking on a project like that. And then, as opposed to having it be some sort of computer creation, he had real musicians playing the real songs and can't go wrong.
0: All right, Jer. Well, look, thanks again for uh, letting me tap into your uh, expertise here in the reissues and things like that. And uh, we will uh, certainly talk again down the line. Iron Mountain's Jerry Ham. And uh, again, Jer, just uh, thanks for being a part of the podcast.
1: Oh, my pleasure. I listen to it every week, and I recommend everyone do the same, and uh, my pleasure to join in and look forward to doing it again sometime.
0: All right, and we'll check in with you again later. Again, that is Jerry Ham right there from Iron Mountain, and uh, just a couple of other stories here before I get into uh, a few birthdays that I want to mention about. Bob Seger has gone on record now as saying, well, he kind of hinted. He has said that his touring days are behind him, following the death of longtime saxophonist Alto Reed. He's the one that has that great opener on Turn the Page. Seeger choked up while recalling his final conversation with Reed. He uh, died in December following a battle with colon cancer. Uh, This was during an interview with SiriusXM. Seeger said, I listened really hard for him, and he said how grateful he was for his wonderful life. He says, I thought that was so beautiful and I thought that was so brave. I don't think I could go out on tour without him. He was a constant member of the Silver Bullet Band. He appeared on all seven of the studio releases that Seeger released between 76 and 95. And as I just mentioned, his introduction on Turn the Page and then his solo on the song Old Time Rock and Roll. Rank among the saxophonist's most notable contributions. He also performed on a couple of live albums during that time, including the 1976 classic called Live Bullet. Now, if his touring days are indeed over, Seeger appeared content with the decision, saying, you know, I've had a great life. I loved what I did. Never worked a day in my life, really. The hard parts were sleeping in hotels and having rotten food. (laughs) All right, so Damn Yankees are in the news right now, and you would say, wait a minute, what are you talking about, Damn Yankees? Well, we're talking about the supergroup that came out years ago, uh, Jack Blades, who is uh, still the uh, current frontman for Night Ranger. In fact, they just put an album on. And then, of course, Damn Yankees, he detailed the... uh, the 90s cultural shift that affected Warner Brothers. That was the record label, their attitude towards his music. So back back up a bit here. Damn Yankees was a super group that featured Blades, Ted Nugent, and Styx's Tommy Shaw that opened the decade with a couple of popular albums, the self-titled 1990 Damn Yankees and 1992's Don't Treadin'. After that point, Blades and Shaw found themselves with a lot of outside work writing for artists like Alice Cooper, Aerosmith, Ozzy Osbourne, and Cher. Um, I was fortunate to interview Jack Blades for Goldmine when he had worked on uh, Ted Nugent's album called Craveman. And Blades told 80s Metal Recycle Ben in a recent interview that it was a great creative period. It was really a fun time. Then the record label said why don't you guys do a record so we did the first shaw blades record which came out in 1995 called hallucination then the atmosphere at the label reportedly changed he said right when the album was released that's when all the guys at the record company decided they needed to shave their heads and be cool and all that kind of stuff that was a real turning point i think it was 1995 actually and it was a very crazy time Blades added that warner brothers did absolutely nothing with the album which reflected a broader change in musical tastes. He says, the new regime came in and they didn't want to do anything with that style of music. And in fact, they paid Damn Yankees a million dollars not to do another Damn Yankees record. We're like, really? All right, we'll take the check. Why not? That's how it was because Damn Yankees had sold so many records and we were so recouped. So in our contract, the next thing was like, okay we get a million bucks to do an album and they just paid us the million dollars not to do the record that's how much nobody wanted anything to do with that era and style of music so they had the uh, the two big albums there and, and again then tommy sean jack blades did the one and I, apparently there were some other songs that came out blade said of the project of a third project. It's probably never going to come out. It was a long lost record. Little pieces of that project dripped out onto my solo record. Tommy had a song on Styx's Cyclorama record. Ted Nugent has done a couple, two or three of them. It's been hard to figure out, but hey, you know, it was a pretty wild time. We don't think that record will ever see the light of day. And, uh, so, in fact, uh, I did interview Ted Nugent a couple of times and they had hoped to do that third album and get that out, but it it never came out. So, uh, who knows whether we'll see that in uh, some kind of a project somewhere down the line. Uh, yeah, so there you go. A little bit about Damn Yankees right there and uh, just a little bit of background there and along with uh, what Bob Seger was doing there. All right. Just uh Few birthdays to bring to your attention, real quick. We know Paul McCartney turned seventy-nine on June nineteenth. Uh, what do you say about Paul McCartney? Uh, so many things. Uh, Beatles had twenty number ones, and then McCartney, I think, uh, went on to have seven or eight on his own. I'd have to do some digging there. That was on June nineteenth. Barry Manilow turned seventy-eight on June seventeenth. On June twentieth, Anne Murray, Canadian singer and songstress, turned seventy-six. It was also the same day that Lionel Richie turned 72. He is presently one of the judges on American Idol. One thing I'll always remember about Lionel Richie, I was, what, 15 years of age? And before he was Lionel Richie, he was one of the members of the Commodores. And I still remember, I still have the original album, Vinyl, that they had an album called Caught in the Act that came out in 1975. Featured a top 20 single called Slippery When Wet. And it would be about a year later when the Commodores really started to uh, to gain radio attention with an album called Hot on the... Actually, Moving On. Yeah, Moving On and then Hot on the Track. So, uh, yeah, Lionel Richie on June 20th, which was really just uh, last Sunday, turning 72 years of age. All right, so finally... This past week in music history, in fact, I go right back to June 23rd, 1972, as this notable achievement in the world of music, this big hit single from the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory became a massive hit by the artist who actually hated the song. He called it horrible. Still, Sammy Davis Jr. eventually relented and needed just a couple of takes to make it the biggest hit of his career, so yes, this date in music history, Candyman would be spending its third week of three weeks at number one on the pop chart in the number one position. It would go on to become the number five single of the year for 1972. It also spent a couple of weeks at number one on the adult contemporary chart. Fred Bronson, who put together a number of different music books, uh, apparently was uh The song apparently noted that the song was originally sung by a guy named, uh, I believe it was a guy, I think this is right, Aubrey Wood, on the soundtrack of that movie. Anthony Newley, who had co-written the song, hated Wood's rendition of Candyman, so much so that he was convinced the song would never amount to anything. Anthony Newley was right when the Mike Curb congregation recorded the song, it went nowhere. Well, then the group tried it again with Davis singing lead vocals, and the rest is music history. Candyman ended a 17-year wait for Sammy Davis Jr. to land his first number one pop hit. Later on in 1972, Chuck Berry likewise ended a 17-year wait when he went to number one with My ding Since then, we have had other performers wait much longer for a number one hit. Tina Turner took 24 years to hit number one with What's Love Got to Do With It. That was in '84. Aerosmith, it took them 25 years to reach the top with I Don't Want to Miss a Thing in 1998. And finally, the record setter for the longest wait between a first chart hit and a first number one, Santana, with about 30 years, when Smooth, featuring Rob Thomas of Matchbox 20, went to number one back in 1999. All right, there you go. And there we go. We're going to wrap it up here for episode number 31 for our music news uh, podcast segment. I want to thank Jerry Hammigan, local uh, uh, friend of mine from the uh, Upper Peninsula area here that uh, specializes in rock uh, reissues and new releases, usually always has an idea about what is coming out, and he's been that way for many years. Thanks again, Jer, for uh, helping out with this. Don't forget, you can catch me Monday through Friday on Frog Country 101.5. WJNR Radio in Iron Mountain, Michigan, and uh, we also uh, do a Forgotten 45 segment on our oldie station, whtoradio.com, three times a week at around 7.45, Monday through, uh, well, what I said, three three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we do that at about 7.45 a.m., generally playing a song that was in the top 40 that not necessarily was a big hit. Hopefully you can... Check that out. Thanks again to my daughter, Sarah, for getting me all set up again today. We're going to try it again next week. Thanks again for listening to Steve-O's Music News.